Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1962, the Commonwealth Electoral Act was amended to allow Aboriginal people to enrol to vote in federal elections. Then, in 1967, a referendum was held to amend the Constitution to formally count Aboriginal people in the National Census. What does this have to do with Australian military history? Not a lot. I just bring it up to make the point that during World Wars I and II, as well as the Korean War and the Malaysian Emergency, Indigenous Australians were not formally considered to be Australian citizens. They weren't permitted to enter pubs, and they couldn't vote, and they weren't counted as being part of the general population. But despite this, a large number of Aboriginal men volunteered to wear the uniform of Australia to go abroad to risk their lives in the service of their country. Exact numbers are hard to pin down, as particularly in World War I, many wouldn't have mentioned their heritage as was actually forbidden for Aboriginal men to enlist. But at least 1,000 served in World War I, and over 4,000 in the Second War. Among those serving in World War II was the son and nephew of two Indigenous diggers from the Great War. This bloke would go on to become the first Indigenous man to receive a commission in the Australian Army in World War II and would go on to lead a company in one of Australia's hardest-fought battles in the Korean War. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone and welcome back. This episode, we are, of course, talking about one of the true legends of Australian history, Reginald Walter Saunders, more commonly known as Reg. He was born near Purnham into the Yundijamara people on an Aboriginal reserve at Frellingham, Western Victoria, on the 7th of August 1920. Reg's mother, Mabel, died in 1924 while giving birth to her third child, Reg's sister, who also died. After her death, Reg's father, Chris, took Reg and his younger brother, Harry, to Lake Conda in Victoria where they were looked after by their grandmother, while Chris undertook various labouring jobs. Like many Aboriginal kids at the time, Reg and Harry walked in two worlds. At the mission school, they were taught maths, languages and all the usual stuff, while whenever he had the chance, Chris taught his boys about the bush and the traditional practices. But he also encouraged them to read Shakespeare and some of the classics of Australian literature. He obviously wanted his sons to be more than just labourers like himself. At the age of 14, Reg had completed eight years of formal schooling and earned his merit certificate. He went to work as a mill hand at a sawmill, and this is where he would show some of the metal that would serve him well in the future. The mill owner often withheld Reg's pay, as well as that of other Aboriginal labourers. But Reg would have none of that. He withdrew his labour until the boss agreed to pay them all their full wages. The employer backed down. While he worked, Reg continued his education, and in 1937, Reg, Chris and Harry went into business together, operating their own sawmill in Portland in Victoria. By all accounts, it was a successful operation. But tragedy struck in 1939 when a bushfire tore through the area and destroyed the mill. Then, not long after, war broke out and Reg more or less went into the family business. The involvement of the Saunders family in Australian military history actually goes all the way back to the Boer War. But who better to tell you about that than the man himself? In a letter to his son, David, which Reg wrote to congratulate David on joining the army, he stated thusly, 
You have a long history of military men in your family. Apart from myself and Uncle Harry, killed in New Guinea, you have Private Reginald Rawlings, MM, your great-granduncle, killed in France in 1917. Then Joe and Kenny Crow, more granduncles in the 14 to 18 war. Then, in the Boer War, you had a great-grandfather, Andrew, my mother's father. In World War II, many of your blood cousins served as pilots in the RAAF and as sailors in Australian warships. I was the only one to return to Australia. And finally, your own grandfather, who served in the Light Horse and as a machine gunner in World War I. They did not all bear the Saunders name, but they are all the same blood and skin as you. End quote. So yes, Reg's father Chris was a World War I veteran. Chris enlisted with the AIF on the 29th of February 1916 at the ripe old age of 21. He served with the 10th Machine Gun Company on the Western Front in France and in Belgium. He arrived at the war in late 1916 and served as a driver. He was evacuated in July 1917 due to illness, but returned to the front a month later and continued his duties until the armistice in November of 1918. William Reginald Rawlings, for whom Reg was named, joined the 29th Battalion in December 1916. He struggled with a bit of trench foot during that harsh winter and was evacuated to England to receive treatment. He wouldn't rejoin his unit until late in 1917. In July 1918, during the attack along Morlancourt Ridge, Rawlings was a part of a bombing team which cleared a communication trench and for, quote, setting a wonderful example to the remainder of his team with his irresistible dash and courage, he was awarded the military medal. Unfortunately, during a further attack on the 9th of August, shortly after leaving the trench to advance, he was hit by a shell and killed instantly. Reg and Harry grew up with stories from their father about his own experiences, as well as the story of William and other Indigenous soldiers. One of the themes of these stories seemed to be that once they put on the uniform, the colour of their skin didn't matter. They were soldiers, equal to those men around them. All that mattered was how they conducted themselves when things got tough. So, when war broke out once more, Reg was keen to go. But his father held him back, telling him to wait six months because this thing was going to be over pretty quickly. The French Maginot Line would hold the Germans and it would all be over. As you may be aware, it didn't quite work out that way. And so, as Reg put it, we waited six months and the duck season was over so there was no more shooting to do except to go to war. In a 1989 interview, Reg said of his decision to enlist, quote, I knew then I was going to the war. It was a sense of duty to the country. Australia is my country, and I'd merely followed in the footsteps of hundreds of other Aboriginals in World War I. End quote. He enlisted in the 2nd AIF on the 24th of April 1940 with a group of mates from his AFL team. That's Australian Rules Football for all those listeners from overseas. Google it, you'll love it. Anyway, despite the policy to only accept volunteers of substantially European origin or descent, Reg had no problems enlisting. He recalled in later years that his fellow recruits were not colour conscious and that while training in northern Queensland, his white mates would sit with him in the Aboriginal section of the local theatres. It turned out that he was also a natural leader. Within six weeks of joining up, he was made temporary lance corporal and after only three months, he was a sergeant. Not bad for a blackfellow from Western Victoria. Reg was posted as a reinforcement to the 2nd 7th Battalion and headed off to join the battalion in the Middle East, arriving in February 1941. The downside of joining a battalion was that he lost his stripes and reverted back to the rank of private. His first experience of being under fire came courtesy of the Luftwaffe as they strafed and bombed any large body of Allied troops they could find. As Reg himself described it, he couldn't have a more terrifying experience than having a bloody aero, three aeroplanes, coming straight at you, you know, about 200 yards off, and firing. You could see the bullets coming, zip, dirt, little puffs of dirt, and you knew bloody well that they were bullets hitting the ground coming towards you about 250 to 300 miles an hour. Hell of an experience. End quote. 
After a couple of months learning the ropes with the 2nd 7th, Reg and the rest of the battalion headed over to Greece for that ill-fated expedition. Initially, the battalion, along with the rest of the 17th Brigade, was ordered to hold a line covering Kalabaka, more or less in the centre line of the Greek peninsula. By this stage, the campaign was already a mess and the Allied forces were withdrawing. The 2nd 7th was a former rear guard and as the retreating forces moved through, the battalion pulled back. The train, which the 2nd 7th were using to withdraw, was subjected to constant air attack on the 17th of April and the crew did the bolt, leaving the train and the troops as sitting ducks. However, an enterprising corporal, Jock Taylor, with the assistance of Corporal Melville and Private Naismith, got another old engine well and truly alight, giving the gentlemen of the Luftwaffe something to aim at, while they got the train hauling the 2nd 7th underway again. They headed back to form part of the rear guard at the Thermopylae line, which you will no doubt remember from episode 20 of this podcast, if my memory serves me correctly. From there, they fell back to Kalamata, where Reg and his mates boarded the Costa Rica and left Greece in the rearview mirror. Unfortunately, a German bomb managed to disable the ship and the men of the 2nd 7th were transferred to another ship and eventually landed on Crete. I've not been able to find anything which specifically relates to Reg during the Greek campaign, but it would be fair to assume that whatever the battalion was in the middle of, Reg was there as well. It isn't until the Battle of Crete that Reg's story really begins. After the evacuation from Greece, the next attempt to halt the Germans was made on the island of Crete. Australians and New Zealanders took up positions to protect the airfield and to cover any positions which the Germans may choose for the landing of troops. But, just like in Greece, Crete was also destined to be a disaster. But it was also where Reg took part in his first serious bit of fighting. As the Allied forces were pushed back, a defensive line was set up along 42nd Street, a north-south road running between Suda and Cannae. It was held from north to south by the 2nd 8th Battalion, the 2nd 7th, the 21st, 28th, 19th and 22nd New Zealand Battalions. Colonel Ditter, commander of the Kiwi Brigade, told Walker and Allen of the Australians that if the Germans came close, his intention was to open fire and then charge. The Australians agreed with this course of action and said they'd support it, if things came to that. At about 11am on the 27th of May, the Australians saw about 400 Germans heading their way down the Sudwood Bay Road. Two companies of the 2nd 7th were forward of the main force and a platoon of the right-hand company were sent forward to keep an eye on the enemy troops. Firing was soon heard from the patrol, and it turned out they were firing on troops raiding a supply depot. Taken by surprise, the enemy turned and ran. Soon after, the two companies of the 2nd 7th joined the patrol and, seeing the Germans in flight, the order was given to charge. You can imagine how the troops felt at this point. This was the first chance since they had landed in Greece to actually have a go at the Germans. Up to here, it had been retreat after withdrawal after fallback. Now, for just this brief moment, all that pent-up frustration was released, and so they went forward cheering. Captain Nelson was leading the charge when he was wounded in the shoulder, and Lieutenant Bernard took over, although he was also wounded. The momentum was unstoppable. On the left, Private Baxter raced forward with the submachine gun and provided covering fire for the assault. The Australians pushed the Germans back for about one mile. On their right, the Kiwis also charged and made about 600 yards. All up, the Battle of 42nd Street accounted for about 280 German dead and only three prisoners. The 2nd 7th lost 10 killed and 28 wounded, while the Maoris had 14 wounded. There is little doubt that Reg took part in this charge, although again, no specific mention of him. In a later interview, he confirmed that this was when he made his first confirmed kill. I saw a German soldier stand up in clear view about 30 yards away. He was my first sure kill. I can remember for a moment that it was just like shooting a kangaroo, just as remote. End quote. It was only a brief respite though, and soon the order was given to evacuate Crete. There was a problem though. 
there weren't enough transports to get everyone off the island. Some would have to be left behind, and Red Saunders was one of them. Many a quick discussion was had between the isolated groups left behind. Would they admit defeat and surrender, or would they try to avoid capture and somehow make their way back to North Africa to rejoin the war? Quite a few made the sensible decision to surrender, but some, including Reg, decided they would hide out and see how things panned out. This was probably one of the few times where Reg's dark skin worked in his favour. As the Germans who were now occupying Crete searched the island for Allied troops, they were looking for the standard Anglo-Saxon looking blokes. With his dark skin, Reg more readily melted in with the olive complexion of the locals. Living in the hills and caves around the island and adopting Cretan dress, Reg learnt the dialect from many helpful locals. The Cretans hadn't forgotten that these men had made a valiant but futile attempt to save their island and so went to great lengths to help out where possible. In fact, they were so helpful that Reg managed to avoid capture for more than 11 months. He was eventually able to be smuggled aboard a fishing trawler in May of 1942, which took him to Bardia and Freedom. One of only a comparative handful of the 3,000 men left behind who was able to make it back. But, of course, by this stage, the 2nd 7th was no longer in North Africa. They'd been pulled back to Australia along with the rest of the 6th Division to meet the threat of the Japanese. Reg made it back to Australia in September 1942 and rejoined the 2nd 7th in January of 1943. He was given three stripes and became acting sergeant, a rank which was later confirmed in April, making him a permanent sergeant despite having held that rank on two previous occasions. But unfortunately, it wasn't a totally happy homecoming for Reg. His younger brother Harry had joined up on the 29th of May 1940 and was posted to the mighty 2nd 14th Infantry Battalion. After helping to halt the Japanese advance down the Kokoda track, the 2nd 14th had a bit of a respite before getting stuck in in the battles of Buna and Gona on the New Guinea north coast, which we heard about in the last few episodes. Harry joined the battalions for these battles, and although he survived the fighting of Buna, he was killed at Gona on the 29th of November in 1942. Reg received a letter from Harry's fiancée, and in May 1943 he wrote to her and expressed his feelings on the loss of his brother. His death was a great shock to me and the rest of the family, and it upset Dad very much indeed, because you know we're the only two boys in the family. Harry was the youngest, of course. Even now, it is very hard for me to realise that he is gone, and it all seems like a very bad dream. But we have got to realise that this is the truth. Knowing the kid as only a brother can know him, I can assure you, if he could have his way, he would certainly not have us or any fretting over him. He is buried in a small military cemetery, very close to where he fell in battle. Someday, I hope to make a pilgrimage to his grave. End quote. This letter was written from New Guinea, and Reg points out that he has been in action against the Japanese on a couple of occasions, and had gotten revenge for his brother. He was writing after having spent over a week in hospital for what he called very common complaints, probably malaria, as it would trouble him from time to time in the future. The fighting which Reg had alluded to in his letter was the Salamoa campaign, fought from April to September. His natural athleticism and bushcraft made him one of the most valuable members of the battalion in this tight-packed jungle fighting. He showed his leadership on many patrols and ambushes, leading from the front with an uncanny knack of choosing the right course of action. He came to the notice of Lieutenant Colonel Henry Gwynne, commanding officer of the 2nd 14th. In October 1943, the battalion was brought back to North Queensland in preparation for future battles. But while the rest of the battalion was in training, Gwynne took Reg aside and said words never before spoken to an Aboriginal man, i.e. I'm recommending you for officer training. In his usual easy-going way, Reg replied, I don't want to be an officer, I'd rather be a regimental sergeant major. Gwyn responded with, Christ, they don't make boys RSMs. Now in these days of political correctness, that statement may appear a bit on the nasty side, 
But context is everything, and boy was never really used as a derogatory term in Australia like it was in America. So I don't think Gwyn was using the word in that way. I think he was just telling Reg he was too young to be an RSM. And anyway, as Kevin Buddy Wilson likes to say, political correctness is a contradiction in terms. If something's political, chances are it's not bloody correct. And who are we to argue with Kev? Anyway, it's a moot point because Reg soon found himself in front of the officer selection panel. The panel liked what they saw, and the Aboriginal son of a World War I Aboriginal digger was on his way to officer training school. He struggled a little bit with graduating on time, not through any lack of ability, but his malaria flared up and resulted in periods of hospitalisation. But regardless, he did manage to finish the 16-week course on time and graduated with the rest of the class in November 1944, after which he was posted back to his old unit as a lieutenant. This was quite rare. Usually when someone from the ranks is commissioned, they'll be sent to a different battalion, and it's not hard to see why. The commissioned ranks are supposed to be a bit aloof from the non-commissioned ranks, so it was often believed that a man would be unlikely to carry the required authority over blokes he'd lived with, fought alongside, and probably shared a beer or two with. Why Reg went back to the 2nd 7th, I haven't been able to find out. As an interesting side note, Reg's companion on the course was Tom Diver Derrick, one of the most famous Australian soldiers of the Second World War. Tom would go on to receive the Victoria Cross and lose his life in one of the final and most pointless battles of the war at Tarakan. But learning to be an officer and a gentleman wasn't the only thing Reg got up to in 1944. In April of that year, Reg undertook the most dangerous, terrifying and chillingly dreadful operation he had undertaken so far in the war years. The poor bugger went and got himself married. Dorothy Mary Banfield was serving as a lieutenant in the Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force when she caught the young man's eye and probably the rest of him as well, I suppose. They married at St Matthew's Church of England in Melbourne. They had a few happy months together while Reg completed his officer's training, but the war soon called its man back, and so Reg rejoined the 2nd 7th in New Guinea. Some of the Army's top brass reckoned this was an event of special significance. It was decided that because of this, the Commander-in-Chief, Sir Thomas Blamey, would need to sign off the approval. To his credit, Blamey insisted on following the usual procedure, believing that Reg shouldn't be treated any different to any other soldier who had completed the required training. His promotion to lieutenant didn't go unnoticed in the Australian press. Most of the coverage was quite positive, although some of it was heavy with the usual nice-to-see-a-black-man-doing-good type of well-meaning but condescending tones. Kind of like, gee, you don't sweat much for a fat chick. From March 1945, Reg was in command of 10 Platoon and led his men through the Atapi Wewak campaign, pushing the Japanese out of their last footholds in New Guinea. On the 11th of May, 11 Platoon launched a raid to remove the enemy from the village of Babunga. The attack was successful with the Japanese beating a hasty retreat and 11 Platoon moved into the village. The Japanese, though, still held the main track and so Reg was ordered to take 10 Platoon to seize the position. The Platoon went forward with machine guns and flamethrowers and once again the Japanese fell back in a hurry. Unfortunately, Reg wasn't able to share in the final push with his troops as he suffered a shrapnel wound to the knee. The only mention made of this in the unit diary is, quote, Casualties in this attack were three enemy killed, our own being one wounded. End quote. Sentimental buggers in the army, aren't they? His wound wasn't too serious, though, and he was only out of action for a couple of weeks. He rejoined Templeton and led them for the remainder of the war. He was in the Weeback area when the war was finally ended and returned to Australia in September 1945 and went on the reserve officer list on the 13th of October. Now, I wish I could tell you that post-war life was good for Reg, but I can't. Unfortunately, although the colour of his skin meant bugger all in the army, in the civilian world it still meant plenty. He applied to be part of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force in Japan, but it was official policy that Aboriginals were not eligible. 
Reg publicly fought against the policy, calling it narrow-minded and ignorant. More kicks in the teeth were to come. Being an Aboriginal man, despite having fought through most of the war and losing his only brother in that war, not to mention being commissioned, he wasn't eligible for a soldier settlement block or return soldiers' education courses. Now, I love my country and am mostly proud of its people and its history, but there are some bits that make you shake your head and wonder just what the hell they were thinking. Fair dinkum, I don't care what colour your skin is or what religion you do or don't follow or what gender you chose to love. If you wear the uniform of this country's army and go to war, you deserve anything and everything that is owed to any other soldier. The fact that Reg and other Aboriginal soldiers were denied that recognition is an absolute disgrace and a stain on our military history. Anywho, rant over. Reg had decided that he'd done enough living rough in the bush, or Crete, or the jungles, and so he figured he'd find a bit of work in the big smoke and moved to Melbourne with Dottie and their three young'uns. He got work as a labourer on building sites, tried his hand at being a tram conductor, worked in an iron foundry, and eventually ended up as a tally clerk at Station Pier. His daughter later told an interviewer that he never seemed to be able to settle into any one job. The only mention Reg made of his struggles was during an interview where he said, I had a hard time after the war, and poor old Dottie, she, you know, didn't know what the hell to make of it. End quote. Probably just another old World War II digger suffering some form of what would later be known as PTSD. But you just didn't talk about those kinds of things back then, did you? Regardless, in June 1950, when the North Koreans invaded the South, Reg was keen to go around again. He returned to the interim army on the 28th of August 1950 and wound up in 3 RAR in Korea in November. He was given a shiny new temporary promotion to captain. Initially, he took command of A Company but moved to C Company in March 1951. The opening stages of the Korean War was a series of advances and retreats. By the time Reg arrived, the North Koreans had been pushed back beyond the 38th parallel, then pushed south again and now the UN forces began the next bit of pushing back up the peninsula. The first push forward had been conducted too rapidly, and so no firm line of advance was created. This allowed the North Koreans to work their way in behind and make life difficult. This time, the northerly advance would be conducted slowly on a broad front in what was known as Operation Rugged. The Australians formed part of the British Commonwealth Brigade, which I've probably told you about before, but just thought I'd reinstate it for those naughty yons amongst you who haven't been paying attention up to this point. Along with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, the Middlesex Regiment and the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry and the Gunners of the 16th New Zealand Field Regiment, three RAR worked their way forward. On 14th of April 1951, Reg led C Company across the 38th parallel after engaging a small enemy party. They were now in rugged, broken country and it was decided to pull back for the night rather than risk infiltration in the darkness. The following day, the brigade was given the objectives of sardine and salmon two hills that formed part of a Razorback Ridge. The Middlesex made two unsuccessful attempts to take Sardine, but A Company of 3 RAR managed to take it with support from the New Zealand artillery. A front line was formed along the ridge, but Salmon was still in North Korean hands. The task of taking Salmon was given to C Company, and at 8.30 the next morning, Reg took C Company up the hill after an accurate airstrike softened things up a bit for them. They took the hill and then held off an attempted counter-attack. The company's casualties totaled two men wounded. It wasn't long after this that the Commonwealth Brigade was relieved, brought back to Kapiong for a breather. Unfortunately, the Chinese army chose this moment to enter the fray, and with a series of massive blows, they put the South Korean army to flight. If you want full details of the ensuing fight, there will be an episode on the Battle of Kapiong coming up. I won't recount the whole shebang here, but basically the Chinese were pushing back all who opposed them, until they reached Kapiong Valley, with the Australians on one side and the Canadians on the other. 
The full weight of the Chinese advance fell on 3 RAR on the night of the 23rd of April. Fortunately, they had support in the form of the New Zealand gunners and American tanks, but it was the diggers who dug in and bore the brunt and stopped the initial Chinese advance dead in its tracks. Throughout all of this, C Company was designated as the mobile reserve. This meant that wherever the fighting was the hardest, if things looked like folding, Reg and his company would go and reinforce that area. Describing the scene as the shattered South Korean army retreated, Reg said, The clamour on our front became easily recognisable as that of a defeated army in retreat. I had heard it before, in Greece and in Crete, and earlier in Korea. I must admit I felt a little dejected until I realised I was an Australian company commander, and if my morale got low, then I couldn't expect much from my troops. This served to buck me up, and I lay down in a shallow trench and had a little sleep. The sound of small arms fire woke me, and soon the crash of a tank cannon in B Company's area. I could also see flashes of firing coming from the direction of battalion headquarters, and I realised that the enemy were now in good position to cut off the companies. End quote. The bulk of the fighting was done by B, A and D companies, but as Reg said, they were cut off from headquarters. C Company was still in contact with headquarters and the other companies, so for much of the opening stages of the battle, Reg's communication post passed messages to and from headquarters and out to the companies. During the 24th, D Company, on C Company's flank, came under heavy attack and Reg's flank platoon was drawn into the fighting. Reg later spoke of the events. D Company stood firm and my fellow said it was better than the fun parlour at Luna Park. However, one great problem soon presented itself. The ammunition was running low and we were beginning to have casualties. About this time, away to the south, I could see dust coming from behind a hill that concealed the road. Then our American tank friends reappeared around the corner, bringing us fresh ammunition and lots of morale. They evacuated our wounded and made several trips along this two-mile stretch of road under fire all the way. They never once faltered and they helped build up a strong bond of respect between the fighting men of two countries. Towards evening, orders came to withdraw. We did so, ably supported by our Anzac friends of the New Zealand 16th Field Artillery. As D Company evacuated their positions, Chinese troops were right behind them, and many a Chinaman had a dead heat or a photo finish with a 25-pounder Kiwi shell. Sometimes the Chinaman won, and sometimes only came second. Several hours later, we came to the Middlesex lines, passed through them, and on Anzac Eve, we dug in among friends. At last, I felt like an Anzac, and I imagine there were 600 others like me. End quote. After seizing the former Australian positions, the Chinese had to deal with the Canadians. The two-day delay inflicted on them by the diggers sapped all the momentum out of their attack, and the rest of the UN forces were able to regroup and begin to push the Chinese back. For their efforts, the three RAR were awarded the United States Presidential Unit Citation one of the few non-American units to do so. After some time out of the line to recover from the hard fight, 3 RAR was back in action. In October, as part of Operation Commando, the brigade were to attack Hills 355 and 317. The trains were assigned Hill 317, a pyramid-shaped hill the eastern slope of which could only be climbed on hands and knees. Unfortunately, the eastern slope was the only way it could be taken. Looking over the position, an Australian officer said of the thickly timbered ridges and broken hillsides, no country for white men. Reg was also looking out and responded, no country for black men either. Fortunately for C Company, they were once again in reserve. The fight for Hill 317 was brutal, and A, B and D Companies slowly pushed their way forward. B and D Companies were fought to a standstill, and so C Company was ordered to advance through D Company and seize the objective. Reg's luck must have been in, because it was at this point that the Chinese believed they were about to be hit from the B Company position, and so weren't ready when C Company came forward, and offered next to no resistance. 
The fighting continued and Reg was involved with most of the fighting with C Company, although I can't find anything more which specifically mentions what Reg got up to. He remained in Korea until March 1952 when he returned to Australia and reverted back to Lieutenant when posted to 2RER. He took over the training of new recruits and national servicemen, but he never really settled into that role. He was a fighting soldier and administration was not his thing. As his CO said, he just wasn't cut out to be a peacetime officer. And so he left the army in 1954. Unfortunately, his marriage to Dottie didn't survive his absence at war and they were divorced. He remarried, but that one also ended in divorce, but not before adding another seven kids to the Saunders family. He tried a few different occupations after discharge and ended up working for the Austral Bronze Company. In 1962, he became president of the St Mary's sub-branch of the Returned Sailors, Soldiers and Airmen's Imperial League of Australia. But in what may have been the most important role of his life, in 1969 he was appointed as liaison officer in the Office of Aboriginal Affairs, newly created after the referendum mentioned at the opening of this episode. In 1971, Queen Elizabeth II made Reg a member of the British Empire, MBE, in recognition for his work in establishing communications between the Australian government and Indigenous communities, laying the groundwork for reconciliation efforts which continue to this day. In 1985, he joined the Council of the Australian War Memorial, but was only in the role for five years when he died of coronary artery disease on the 2nd of March 1990. In 1992, the RSL established a scholarship in his name for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. The Australian War Memorial recognised Reg's contribution to Australian arms by opening the Reg Saunders Gallery and Courtyard in 2015. There have been many standout characters in Australia's military history, and each and every one of them deserves to be remembered. But among that company, Reg certainly deserves to stand out. Not because he was black, but because when his country needed him, he twice answered the call and upheld the finest traditions of Australian arms, despite not even being recognised as a citizen of his own country. That takes a special type of bloke best that we don't forget him hope you enjoyed that episode if so feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on instagram under amh podcast or on facebook also apparently leaving a review on itunes helps more people to find the podcast so it'd be very much appreciated if you can head over to itunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of australia at arms and remember if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about drop me a line at amhp media at gmail.com Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.